invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, we're going to uh, be reading verses 22 through 30. Just to remind you that uh, we spend a significant amount of time in a worship service uh, in the Word. Uh, we believe that uh, the Word of God is actually inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that these very words are things that God wants us to hear, uh, that these are the words that God uses to save people, uh, uses to build up His saints, that God accomplishes His mission in the world, not through church programs or uh, well-intentioned initiatives, but God accomplishes His purposes in the world primarily through His Word. Uh, that is the mighty weapon that the Spirit uses uh, to accomplish the purposes of the Lord. And so this morning, we come to this Word then with reverence, with, with humility. We want to see what Jesus um, has for us this morning. Jesus intends to feed us the, today uh, with His words. So let's give it our attention. Uh, verse 22 of Luke chapter 13. He, that is Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word this morning. Lord Jesus, we come to you by the Spirit and thank you for your ministry. Thank you, Lord, that we have these words recorded for us that we might know, that we might believe, that we might be built up in our faith. Jesus, I pray that you would accomplish your saving purposes in our midst this morning uh, through your word, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a song uh, I remember from a childhood that we used to sing in Sunday school. I don't think we sing it any longer. I I don't pay strict attention to singing time, but I, I've not heard this one. Um, but the song goes like this, one door and only one, and yet its sides are two, inside and outside. Which side are you? Some of you remember that song. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? It's a very simple song, and yet uh, it's a song that contains profound a weight and significance and truth. There's, there is one door to eternal life we're going to see this morning, only one door, and that door has two sides. It has an inside and an outside. And every person in the world is either on the inside or on the outside. No one's standing sort of in the doorway. 
And inside the door, you'll find eternal life. You'll find everlasting joy and love and peace in the presence of Jesus Christ forever and ever. Everything that you were made for, that your heart uh, maybe hungers for, is found on the inside of that door. And on the outside of the door, you find death and judgment, condemnation, torment, everlasting misery, anguish, loss, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. That's the outside of the door. And the most essential question for every single person is this question then, on which side are you, inside or outside, and how can you know? How can you be sure? Well, that's the message that we have here this morning in Luke's gospel as he's continuing to show us Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus uh, has set his face to Jerusalem, Luke said, chapter 9. There's urgency in his voice. There's a purpose in his stride. He knows precisely where he's going. He knows why he's going there. He's going to Jerusalem to be put to death by the elders and the chief priests. But he's going there at the will of the Father. He's going there to accomplish the work that he came to do, to answer all the sin and brokenness and guilt and shame and death that was brought into this world by virtue of Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. He's going to go offer his perfect life as an atoning sacrifice, which is going to be able to, it'll have the power to make everything new, to to free people from their bondage to death, to build the kingdom of God, an everlasting kingdom. Jesus Christ is on his way to Jerusalem so that those who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why he's here. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. And that's his journey this morning as we uh, have then, first of all, a speculative question. Someone comes to him with this interesting question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? We don't have any clues in Luke's gospel as to what may be motivated this man's question, but we do know that it was a common point of discussion and debate among the Jews of that time. They enjoyed debating religious ideas, as religious people often do. Uh, and particularly, they enjoyed debating and discussing the ideas about which Scripture said very little. Those provide the most opportunity for speculation, uh, for intrigue and mystery and, and pontification. Uh, if you actually have a text that disagrees with you, it makes it a bit difficult. But if you have this general vague idea that you can uh, run into with curious questions and, uh, and strong uh, opinions, uh, those are the things that religious people, uh, particularly men, I think, like to uh, to argue about. I heard a few of those arguments growing up as a child. But um, that seems to be then what comes out of, uh, what be, seems to be motivating this man. It's, it's an interesting question. He's, he senses that Jesus is a, is a Bible teacher of some note, a rabbi who who's, um, seems to have some understanding of the scripture. And, and so he asks the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? There's many people who ask just sorts of curious questions today about the Bible, things that the Bible doesn't say a whole lot. And uh, Jesus responds to the question in an intriguing way. He said to them, notice the man asked the question, Jesus speaks to the whole group. He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now if it seems to you like Jesus is not answering the question, that's because he's not answering the question. You see, it's, it's a bit of a pattern with Jesus. If you, if you read through the Gospels, you've noticed this, that someone will ask something and Jesus will launch into a discussion that you're wrestling in your mind, what does this have to do with that? How did he get there? Why doesn't he answer the question? Well, it's a, it's a 
It's a fair question to ask. And what you'll find as you, as you study the Gospels is that Jesus, when he uh, ignores a question, it's generally because he's answering the question that they should have asked. You see, people ask questions out of their little framework, out of their, um, what they think is important, what they think is necessary, what they think matters. And, and the truth is they don't really know what matters. So, for instance, in Luke chapter 12, remember someone in the crowd says, Lord, uh, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he tells the story about the rich fool who built himself nice big barns, and that very night his soul was going to be uh, required. You see, Jesus wasn't here to be... um, just to play these silly games. He's, he did not come to satisfy what they uh, believed were their felt needs. He didn't come to converse with spiritually curious people. He didn't come to pander to religious people, religious convention. Uh, Jesus, you see, came to rescue people made in the image of God from hell. That's why he came. And so he would take their trivial requests, the the questions that prove that these people had no sense of the ultimate uh, significant things. They didn't have have a sense of the eternal consequence of their life. They didn't have a sense of the nature of God. And so they would ask their small, little, irrelevant questions that, that maybe made a lot of sense to them, but in the scale of what Jesus knew and what Jesus saw, he would just answer the question that should have been asked. And that's what he does here. How many will be saved? Let, let's, let's talk about that. And Jesus uh, doesn't talk about that. Jesus talks about who is going to be saved. It's much more relevant. Strive to enter through the narrow door. There's one door and only one that leads to everlasting life. We have here, obviously, one of the most controversial teachings of Christian theology, don't we? This idea of the exclusivity of Jesus... Uh, people like to think that there are many doors, many ways to God, and yet the, the Bible says that there's only one door, only one way into the presence of God, only one way into everlasting life. Phil Reichen writes this, today there are more than a thousand organized religions in America, each with its own system of belief, doctrine of God, explanation of reality, view of humanity, and sense of destiny. A thousand organized and if, if, if that is true, how can Christians, you see, this is the, the question the world asks, how can Christians have the temerity, the unmitigated audacity to say not only that there's only one door, not a thousand, but that their door out of the thousand is the only right door? Right? In our pluralistic, relativistic, universalistic age, I mean, that's just, that's silly on the face of it. It's offensive on the face of it. You don't even have to argue a position like that. It's so self-evidently outrageous. To say there's only one way and, and that, that the door that you're in, you went in, that's the only way to God? How arrogant could you be? How deluded. How intolerant. So why would Christians do this? Well, because Jesus does this. We didn't write the book. I love it that we didn't write the book. Jesus wrote the book. 
Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. John 14, 6. Jesus says in John 10, 9, I am the door, the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus says it, and so we believe it. And we believe it in the blizzard of opposition to it. And in, in, in all the um, and blizzard of opposition, not just from, from the world, but from many in the church. This is, this is one of the articles that the emergent church uh, tried to say, we need to be done with this. There's no inside and outside. We need, there's no barriers. There's no boundary lines when it comes to God's grace. Everybody's in. They simply need to realize it. They need to be notified. It's, it's an offensive doctrine, but it's Jesus' doctrine. Secondly, there's one door, and only one, and it's a narrow door. Jesus strived to enter the narrow door. Why is it called narrow? Well, we have, we have a clue in Matthew chapter 5. If you remember, Jesus says there in Matthew 7, excuse me, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The, the idea of, you see, of a narrow gate, a narrow door, is, is, is that... There are two different paths in your life. There's, there's, the, there's the one way, the wide gate, that's easy. It, it leads to destruction, but it's very easy. All you need to do to get into the wide gate, just be yourself. Just go along with the current of the culture. Just uh, uh, give ultimate authority to what you think and how you feel and what people say. Um, let yourself be molded by the desires of your heart and don't worry too much about the passions of your flesh. Don't, be, don't really be that concerned about your soul. You're basically a good person. God knows your heart, all that sort of thing. Uh, you can go to church. That might be good for you if it helps you um, be a better person, be more fully human. You can do that. But, but don't get like all serious about you know, all the things that the church says and all that the Bible says. Don't, don't get passionate about it. Don't strive for spiritual things. Don't, this whole thing about dying to self and all that. Just do what comes easy. And uh, you will find that you, it, is, it is a very easy thing to do, to do what comes easily. But if you do, you see those things, you, you will be on the wide gate. That leads to destruction. To destruction. It's the easiest thing in the world to do, to go to hell. It is an incredibly easy thing to do. Just be yourself. That's Jesus' message. But he says, you see, if you want to live, if you want to find everlasting life, it's a narrow door. It's a narrow gate. It's a narrow path. And what Jesus wants to communicate, it, it, it doesn't come easily. It comes with hardship. It comes with heartache. It comes with death. It comes with striving and effort and labor and tears. Now, Jesus is not saying um, you're going to have to work really hard to merit your salvation. Right? I am the door. Not you are the door if you work really hard. I'm the door. This is not about how to be justified before God. the way to be justified before God is by faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. But, the, but Jesus wants us to know that the, the, the road that leads from justification to glorification is a road that I- involves striving and labor and hardship and tears. 
It involves striving. The Greek word is agonizomai. We get the word agony from it. It means to battle. You see, because we, we, have, we have enemies on this road, the world and the flesh and the devil, and, and so there's, there, no, there needs to be striving for the things of God. Paul says, I fought the good fight. Finish the race. Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. Peter says, brothers, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you're experiencing, as though something strange were happening to you. When you got on the good ship salvation, it was not a cruise ship. It is a battleship. It involves striving. I think it's a message we need to keep reminding ourselves in a culture that insists that there has to be an easier way. And that we can figure out easier ways, more palatable ways to be saved. Remember the hymn that asked the question, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? We have people sailing through bloody seas still today in various parts of the world, people under persecution, people under oppressive governments, people in prison who know that to come to Jesus Christ means they lose everything, and yet they come because they found the pearl of great price and they're willing to give up everything to have it. Are there no foes for us to face? Must we not tread the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace, to help us on to God? Since I must fight, if I would reign, increase my courage, Lord. And I'll bear the toil and endure the pain supported by your word. That's the Christian life. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he immediately tells us why this striving is so important, because there will be many, he says, on that last day who fail to get in. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. That's a, that's a startling verse. Many will seek to enter and not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock and say, Lord, open to us, he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. There's a surprising turn in the story here. The, the surprises are two. One, who gets left out, and, and secondly, who gets let in. There will be many, Jesus said, who fully expected to get in that door. They came to the door expecting to be allowed in. But you see, Jesus is putting his finger here on the crucial moment. Uh, when the man asks the question, Jesus says to the crowd what they all need to hear. Because you see, lurking behind that little question... Will, will those who are saved be few, lurking behind that question, is the false assumption that he, the man asking the question, he himself is one of the number, however many it may be. You see, this man and this audience are living, are living under the false assumption that they can have these casual conversations about who all gets in, but they're asking it from the, the comfortable Jewish confidence that they are most certainly in. They are Abram's children. They're heirs of the covenant, heirs of the prophets, heirs of the promises. The Gentiles are the lost ones. The only way to be lost as a Jew was to be notoriously wicked, like a prostitute or tax collector, you see. But they, the good people of Israel, they're, they're comfortable in the easy chair of their Jewish ethnicity and their Jewish religion and tradition. So that's what Jesus sees, and that's what he addresses. He's, he's speaking to them. 
many, many of them will seek to enter the door that leads to eternal life and will not be able to. Why not? Because the door's closed. The master got up and he closed the door and, and, and they'll go and they'll knock and they'll say, Lord, open to us. And the master will say, I do not know where you come from. Who, who are you people? Who are you? You see, clearly there's no relationship that's been established. These people are strangers to the owner of the house. He doesn't, he doesn't know who they are. And now that will be a surprise to them. You see, th- then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You, you taught in our streets. Jesus, don't, don't you remember us? We had you over to the house. Remember, we, we ate together. We were there when you healed the crippled woman who was bent over. We, we were there, we saw it. And we were, Lord, we loved it. We praise God because of it. How can you, how can you say, I don't know you? How can you say, I don't, rem- I, don't, I don't know where you come from? You see, they will appeal to their casual familiarity with Jesus and their casual appreciation for Jesus as a basis of being allowed into everlasting life. You have any idea how many people <coughs> are making that same mistake today? Yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. Sure, I go to church. I, I think Jesus is great. I believe all that stuff. Whatever the church believes, that's what I believe. And they're absolutely trusting that their casual familiarity with Jesus and their casual appreciation for Jesus ought to be the basis then for them being allowed into the door. They had some religious experience. They said a prayer at some point. They feel bad when they do bad things. They believe that Jesus is, is, is someone who forgives sinners. And they're, they're quite confident. When they go to, to, to knock on that door, he'll open it. And Jesus says, no, I won't. No, I won't. What he will say is, depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abram and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be cast out. You can look in the window, and there you'll see Abram and Isaac, and you'll see people gathered around them, and they're, they're rejoicing, and they're celebrating, they're feasting at this luxurious table, this banquet feast. It's right there through the window. You can see it, and you can't get in. You're on the outside of the door. Friends, that's what he's saying. Hell is is an experience of profound regret over a wasted life, over a hopeless eternity, all because of false assumptions. It's a place where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth for those, particularly, you see, for those who expected to be on the inside, and yet when they get there, they find to their horror that the door is closed. I cannot imagine a worse experience. What could possibly be worse than having a familiarity with Jesus, living your life in the comfortable confidence that you would be received into heaven only when you, to find that when you face the real Christ, he doesn't know you and he does not receive you. See, there's one door and only one. The question is, on which side are you? On which side are you? And that gets us to our last point, who is allowed in? Jesus says, people will come from the east and the west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some are first who will be last. 
There's two ironies or unexpected things here. First is that the kingdom will be much more inclusive than people imagine. When this man was asking, Lord, will many or few be saved? He's thinking, okay, we've got the Jews. And then I just wonder, how, you know, we'll have a trickling of Gentiles. They've seen that happening. And, and the Bible says some things about the light going to the nations and the Gentiles. So, so you know, beyond the core, how many would there be maybe? But it's, it's, it's the... the the faith in his mind is primarily an exclusive religion for exclusive set of people and then maybe a few others. And, and Jesus sort of turns that around. He says, from east and west and north and south, they're going to be gathered in. All tongues, tribes, and nations. The kingdom is, is fundamentally inclusive. And it's inclusive in the most important sense, right? In sense, Christianity is the most inclusive of all religions. It is not just for people from a particular ethnic background. It is not just for people who are able to obey God better than other people or who have reached a certain level of enlightenment. You do not have to be any smarter, any more religious, or any holier than anyone else. You just have to be a sinner who is praying for God to give you grace in Jesus Christ. That's it. The door is open to everyone who says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and comes to Jesus Christ to receive God's provision for their sin. And that's why the first will be last. The man asks how many will get in. Jesus responds by who will get in and and the, and the answer to Jesus' question, who, is, is that those who falsely assume that they will get in because of, of their whatever will not get in. Because of their ethnicity, their religion, their righteousness, they're not going to get in. Two men went to the temple to pray. One stood and, and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And he, and he gave his list of things he accomplished. And the other man went and he could not even lift his head but beat his breast, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you of the two, that man went home justified. That man. Who gets in? The last. The least expected and the least deserving. Jesus in Matthew chapter 21 uh, is speaking to Pharisees. Men who had it together in their mind. Who were serious about the things of God. You know what Jesus said to them? Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Do you know what? The world does not believe we believe that. The world does not believe we believe that. The world thinks that we believe that the Pharisees are at the head of the line. That the good people, the worthy people, the people who've got it together, the people who can make their kids sit in church without right, raising a, a ruckus, the people who dress in nice clothes and have respectable jobs, and that sort of their lives are, are together. Those are the people who are first in line. That's what the world thinks we believe. And maybe some of us do. That's why we need to hear the gospel. We need to hear the gospel. There's a great a short story by Flannery O'Connor entitled Revelation. Tim Keller references it in his book, Reasons for God. But in the story, Mrs. Tupin, a southern, Bible-believing, Christian self-righteous lady, um, has a revelation that in spite of, of all her efforts, she's no better than the worst sinner and, and just as deserving of hell and needs grace just as much as the worst sinner, and she does not like the idea. And so she's back at home, and she's, 
She's talking to God. Why me, she rumbled. It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to you, and I break my back to the bone every day working and do for the church. If you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then. Exactly how am I like them? I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy, lounge about the sidewalks all day, drinking root beer, dip snuff and spit in every puddle and have it all over my face. I could be nasty. A final surge of fury shakes her and she cries out to God, Who do you think you are? At that moment, the sun sets and she sees a purple streak in the sky. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of trash and, the, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. But at the end was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything in the God-given sense to use it right. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they always had been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. In a moment, the vision faded. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. You see, God's grace goes not to the people who've got it all together and have the good common sense to, to keep their life in order, but it goes to sinful, shameful people who, the truth be told, can't possibly keep their life in order, not even their own heart. And whatever they can maybe accomplish on the outside, on the inside, it's just, it's just shambles. And the, on, on the inside, we're all just trash, right, in sin. We're the broken, the, the sinful, the rebellious, the wicked, by virtue of sinful nature, by virtue of our, the fact that we do things that we know we should not do, even this week. But that grace, you see, is found for those who come to Christ Jesus in faith and repentance. Only those, you see, this was the mistake that the Jews made. They thought that they were the children of Abraham. But as the New Testament makes clear, only those who have the faith of Abraham gain the reward of Abraham. Uh, God said to Abraham, I will be a God to you, but, but you need to have the faith of Abraham to get the reward. And what's the faith of Abraham? Well, fundamentally, it is a faith that God will do what is necessary to rescue us, to save us. He will, he will provide the necessary sacrifice for our sin. You remember when Abraham and Isaac were walking up the mountain because God said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. And they're up, heading up the mountain, and, and Isaac is, is looking around and says, Father, we, we've, got the, we've got the wood, we have the fire, but where's the lamb? What a question to ask. And Abraham, what does he say? He says, God will provide. God will provide. And in that confidence, he built the altar. In that confidence, he laid his own son bound on that altar. In that confidence, he raised his knife. And in that moment, God told him to stop. And God provided a ram. And God attributed to faith righteousness. Not Abraham's righteousness, Christ's righteousness. The sacrifice that God provided. 
And that's why you see faith is the entrance into the door that leads to everlasting life. The conviction that God has provided a sacrifice for you. Sufficient to pay all your debt. Able to atone for all your sin. To pardon all your guilt. To clothe you with a righteousness you could never possibly gain. Jesus is the door to everlasting life. And Jesus says, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. But you have to come to him. I don't care how Christian you are. You have to come to Jesus. Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's great classic. Remember, if there's a Christian's on his way to the celestial city, and he comes upon these two guys. Uh, one's uh, named Formalist, the other's named Hypocrisy. And they, he's on his way, and these guys come tumbling over the wall. And he says, Whence came you? Where'd you come from? Where are you going? And they said, Well, we're, we were born in the land of vainglory, but we're on our way to, uh, to Mount Zion to praise. And Christian says, well, why didn't you come in at the gate that stands at the beginning of the way? And they said, well, to go to the gate for entrance, uh, that, that's too far about. Everyone understands that. And, and so the usual way that people do it is they just climb over the wall. And Christian says, well, won't that be a trespass against the Lord of the city? And they said, well, it's, we can show this has been the custom of people for a thousand years and no doubt a custom that long-standing would be allowed by an impartial judge. And, and if we get into the way, uh, in, into this narrow way that way, and you get into it some other way, well, what does it matter? We're both on the same way. Which people say all the time. Well, you go to church and you, 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 know, you repent, I guess, that's what you do. And, you, and that's how you get into the way. Well, I'm, I get in the way I do my own worship over here and, and uh, on my own terms. And, and, and I, we're both on the same way. What, what does it matter how we got in? How is your condition any better than ours, they say? This is what Christian says. You come in by yourselves without his direction, and you shall go out by yourselves without his mercy. There's one door, and only one, and yet its sides are two. Can you say this morning that by the grace of God you're on the inside, and it's by grace and grace alone? Do you know that this morning? Are you confident of it? Are you the person who maybe Jesus was talking about? The person who has made all the assumptions and is going to have the, horrifi the horrifying experience on the last day of seeing the door closed? The most essential question of your life, on which side are you? Jesus Christ this morning, friends, wants you to be saved. He gave his life to that end. Let's respond then in faith. In faith, in him. Repentance towards him, obedience, because he's our Lord. May God grant it. Amen. God in heaven, you know our hearts. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that you know what we need to know and to hear. Lord, we, we come into this church building with a lot of pressing concerns and wounds with heartaches and Jesus we would our preference would probably be that you would specifically address our very specific concern but I thank you Lord Jesus that you always redirect our thoughts and hearts to you 
Because, Lord, these are the most essential things. And, and if it's true that, Jesus, you, the very Son of God, came into this earth to die for us, that we might enter in and eat at the eternal banquet feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets, if you came to do that, Lord, then we could trust that whatever the circumstances of our life, they're in your hand. And we could have joy and peace in believing, even in the midst of great trial. So Jesus, I thank you for redirecting us again today to you, the door, the Savior of sinners. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who are blind in their false assumption, who have maybe even just some pent-up frustration that they're living the best they can and you don't seem to be doing what you ought to be doing. And they don't know you, Jesus, as a savior for sinners. They haven't, they haven't delighted in unmerited grace. And so there's grumbling and complaining. There's maybe self-pity, maybe a martyr complex, maybe, Lord, just, um, or pride because we're, we're doing quite well. But we don't really, truth be told, love Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would Give us hearts that love Jesus because we've been forgiven much. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.